Sub GW, SUP, or SUP, stands for Sustainable Urban Planning. This is George Washington University's Sustainable Urban Planning graduate student-run podcast. We interview thought leaders, faculty, fellow students, alumni, and working professionals to talk about sustainable urban planning topics, themes, issues, and news not just in the DMV, but across the country and around the world. Tune in each semester for a new season, new ideas, and to hear what's up with Sustainable Urban Planning. Welcome today to the second part of our discussion on park equity, where with the help of our two guests, we will continue to explore cultural competency in park programming and design. Once again, my name is Joy McFadden. And my name is Garrett Johnson. We are both first year sustainable urban planning students here at GWU with an undergrad in environmental engineering and geography respectively. As you know, in an increasingly diverse world, it is super important that public spaces create welcoming environments for everybody using them regardless of their skin color, sexual orientation, religious beliefs, or cultural background. Which is why we define cultural competency as a process of identifying and creating an environment that meets the needs of an area's demographic makeup relating to the ideas, customs, and social behavior. For parks, this concept can affect the programming, the staffing, and decisions regarding the built environment. Our guest today, Kira moser Daskalakis and Britta McGomber have a great deal of experience with this concept. Thank you both for joining us today. Hi, my name is Kira Moser-Daskalakis. Um, I recently finished as an associate project manager and researcher at the UCLA Luskin Center for Innovation, um, where I worked on parks equity projects. Um, I also received my master's in urban planning at UCLA um, in environmental planning, uh, and I'm currently a PhD student at UC Davis uh, studying environmental policy. Hey, I'm Britta McComber, and I'm a current project manager and researcher at the UCLA Luskin Center for Innovation. Um, I've worked on in a lot of different research areas there, um, mainly uh, transportation, um, sustainable water, uh, climate change, and parks equity. Uh, prior to that, I got my master in urban and regional planning from UCLA in 2018. And before that, I had a major in geography at Dartmouth College. Yeah, geography major. <laughs> <laughs> great. We're so great to um, grateful to have you guys here today to speak with us about this. Absolutely. Yeah. Thanks for thanks for chatting with us. Um, okay, so I want to ask you, Bifam, how do you define cultural competency and why do you believe that it is vital to have in our parks? Number one, it involves being aware of and also striving to understand cultures that are different than your own. Um, and I think of cultural diversity not, not only in terms of race, ethnicity, or country of origin, but also in terms of um, different backgrounds, upbringings, life experiences, lived experiences, um, socioeconomic status, religious or political preferences, um, sexual orientation or gender identity, etc. Um, and I think for me, a cisgendered white woman, um, in order to have cultural competency, I first need to 
inventory and acknowledge my own um, personal or subconscious biases um, and my own privileges, um, as well as acknowledge and understand broader institutional and structural um, processes and inequities that lead to disproportionate or inequitable outcomes um, or inequitable burdens and benefits for different groups of people. Um, so for example, in Los Angeles um, with park space and park access, we see that it's more concentrated and accessible in higher income and typically wider neighborhoods. Um, while there are um, communities or neighborhoods that um, are predominantly um, Hispanic Latino or folks of color um, or neighborhoods and communities that are predominantly lower income or are disadvantaged communities um, have the least access to park space or the least park acres um, per 1000 residents, which, which is one way we measure that. Um, and this is really a multidimensional issue because as we know, parks provide a multitude of environmental, public health, mental health benefits. Um, and in neighborhoods in LA with the highest park need have those compounding environmental burdens, um, in, including poor air quality um, and more disparate health outcomes, such as higher rates of asthma um, and things like this. So maybe one final part of this cultural, cultural competency um, topic, in my opinion, for specifically for park planning is, um, or maybe it's getting out like why it's vital to have this in park planning. Um, it's, I think, necessary to have a bottom up and community driven approach to these various processes involved in park development. So funding, site selection, design, building, renovation, um, choosing what amenities go in the park, things like this, because the community really knows best what they need and what they want in their neighborhoods. Um, and kind of having just this cookie cutter approach, so not having cultural competency um, in these various stages of park development and implementation, um, that's not gonna work for a lot of communities. Um, so, you know, I think involving the community in every stage um, of the park development process um, through community engagement, participatory engagement, um, that is really needed to kind of achieve that goal of more equitable and inclusive park space for all. Um, and something I think about a lot is, is it accessible in terms of language, um, in terms of amenities, and you know what does that look like is is the signage in the appropriate language um in la that would predominantly be predominantly be english and spanish um but of course we have pockets of you know um we have pockets of of communities here and diaspora communities here who um you know it would be it would be better they would be better served by signage in their language right in the language of that community um diversity in um you know what what is represented in the park art or the park design uh, people need different things depending on who lives in the surrounding area so if you go to the community and you say what do you want you know some folks might prioritize 
like a playground. Other folks might prioritize sports fields or, you know, sports courts, exercise equipment, um, you know, trees, like picnic tables, like places to sit. So it can look like a, a park can look so many different ways. Do you have anything that you would like to add, uh, Kyra, to that? Like, what is your take on cultural competency? I apologize. Uh, well, I mean, Britta summed that up really well, and I think that's such a great answer, um, and I definitely agree with um, her points. I guess uh, the one thing I'll say that I think I thought about a lot is how it's so important to have this at every stage of the park process. So there's there's kind of the, the initial component of where to site a project, and then there's the design of the space, but there's also something that's really important, I think, is programming um, in a park. You know, ultimately, after you have this park, it's activated by the community. They're the ones that are using it. And there's so many different ways that um, a park space can be used based on what the community needs or wants to share. Um, and so having a design that not only incorporates kind of the initial feedback, but also like leaves that door open to kind of innovation as the space grows and changes because community members really are planners in their own right. Um, and they, they kind of activate a space after it's, it's built as well. So making sure that kind of the space and the resources are there for that as well. Um, and I think also um, something that comes up in a place like the National Park Service um, and kind of the Santa Monica Mountains versus maybe a neighborhood park is also staffing, I think is really important. Um, people feel, you know, there's also this, there's the physical component of asset access, but also feeling like you belong in a space and feeling comfortable being somewhere and having staff that um, kind of you see yourself in um, and are reflected in the park can make you feel more comfortable being in that space. So I think that's having that diversity reflected in the rangers and the, the staff that are working at the park is really important. Um, so yeah, having um, a diverse range of staff and then having you know multilingual staff and things like that can be really important um, for, for parks that have staff members. Um, so yeah, definitely kind of there's that physical access piece and then there's the, the you know, being able to feel like you belong in a space. And that also means kind of culturally relevant signage um, or stories that are being shared. You know, I think the National Park Service of focus they've had a lot is is sharing stories that haven't been told, but are certainly a very big part of California's history um, and trying to kind of expand the diversity of stories that they share um, in their their programs and in their kind of the signs that are up with information um, and even just creating new national parks um, and or state park sites um, reflecting important moments in history from um, the diversity of stories um, that have been in California all along. Yeah, I was lucky right, like, also growing up that I actually got to work in a park, again, Cortland Park in New York City for three years. And I definitely agree with you having culturally, di culturally diverse programming, like barefoot dancing, um, and also just having a group of coworkers who look like me, but also so very different from me made it such a comfortable space for me that I, it was a no brainer for me to stay there for three years. And that's what drove me into this um, field of planning and in environmental engineering before it. So parks have always been a fantastic space for me. And I, I think speaking as um, for myself and Garrett, that we definitely want parks to continue to be safe spaces for everybody in our cities. So definitely. moving on to the next question, um, what do you think in your opinion is the biggest barrier to achieving cultural competency? Um, so I did, uh work on a project which we haven't like released a report yet for anything where we were interviewing a lot of um, people around the state that worked on parks um, specifically to talk about park access and equity in 
um, park access, which is how we kind of came up with this definition that included all these different components of access that wasn't just, you know, do you live next to a park as important as that is, um, but also like, you know, do you feel comfortable? Is the programming reflective and is the staff reflective um, of the diversity of, of where the park is? And I think one barrier that was certainly identified is this, this need to have more diversity in park staff, um, at least for, for um, parks that had staff and um, kind of there's a lot of interesting uh, sometimes bureaucratic procedures in hiring that sometimes limit um, opportunities and can make things difficult. And so coming up with, with sometimes administrative fixes to change the hiring process to create more opportunities for seasonal workers and trainees to kind of come through the process and ultimately you know, have full-time jobs in parks is, is super important. And I think that's something that definitely needs to, to continue. And, and they're doing a great job now of, of working on that. Um, but I think it's a barrier now um, at the moment, just based on like the historic pipeline of, of um, getting more diverse uh, park workforce. Um, and then also I think a lot of funding for parks is really focused on this capital piece. You know, we have an aging playground, we have to replace it, things like that. And sometimes it can be more difficult to get that funding for these sort of long-term programming um, mm -hmm. pieces that will continue long after the park is built. Um, obviously, maintenance and building new parks is huge and very important, and there is, is funding for it. Um, but there definitely also still needs to be that kind of long-term um, kind of programming funding available um, to, to kind of keep that in place as well. Um, I think it, like a huge barrier is also just like that on the ground engaged participation with communities um, and the existing community community organizations um, that know the people, you know, know those folks, know those residents the best, um, you know, in all of those stages of of funding, of park design, of where to put the park, of developing the park, of deciding what goes in it, what it looks like. Um, I think that that is, is just a huge barrier. And, um, you know, I definitely agree with what Kira said about like part of that being a lack of diversity maybe in the staff itself, whether it's, whether it's the local government or the National Park Service or, um, you know, the park crews or whatever it is, like, but I think also like urban planners and like people who make those decisions about like the budget and the fiscal year allocations and all these things, like um, when you're lacking diversity at, up at those levels um, or you don't have people in your, you know, on your staff who are, you know, from communities like that or like, um, or you don't talk to people from, from those communities, um, those priorities of those people who've already, you know, disproportionately, disproportionately don't have access to as many parks or as many like quality parks and open space, like that cycle is just going to be perpetuated. Um, so um, yeah, no, I'm glad that um, you touched on topics that we've discussed in class as well. Um, Kira, you talked about diversity and staffing, which is definitely something that when you receive representation of yourself, you're more likely to go to that park. So I'm so glad you touched on that. So uh, we, you guys worked on a project together, understanding the needs of diverse park users uh, in the Santa Monica National Recreational Area. 
uh, part of that project, I just wanted you guys to touch on uh, how was the data collected for that and how, what metrics did you use to analyze that data and what did you kind of learn from that information about the, uh, the Santa Monica Mountain Project? We both worked on, Kira, Kira um, was really involved in the data collection part and then we both together worked on kind of the analysis and writing of the report. Yeah, I can um, start uh, with the data collection. Um, this project was a bit of a beast in terms of the, the, so the Santa Monica Mountains, well, I guess I'll start by saying that the Santa Monica Mountains National Recreation Area, um, it's like the largest uh, urban national park in the country. And it even encompasses a lot of parks that if you're from LA, you might not even know are, are part of this National Recreation Area. Um, so even things like Runyon, just like a, it's like right in Hollywood and, you know, all the Instagrammers go and, and hike and take their pictures there. And it's, it's this really popular spot, but it's part of the National Recreation Area or like Williker Park, um, all these places. So it stretches surprisingly pretty far east from what you would think. Um, so it does encompass a really wide variety of, of locations and, and types of um, trails and settings. And so they um, had last done a major survey of their uh, park back in, oh gosh, what was it? Like 2000 and... 2002. 2002. Okay, so yeah, it had definitely been like 15 years, um, at least from when we started working on the project. And so it was really important that they needed to update this data. So they had done a visitor survey to kind of figure out who was coming to the park, what what they used in the recreation area, what they, what kind of amenities they needed, you know, those kind of ideas. Um, they just didn't have updated data. And obviously so much has changed in 15 years. Um, the demographics of the county, um, you know, how people are using, using the parks, um, the state of the trails, things like so many things have changed. So it was really important that they update um, that information. And so it was also important that we got a really wide range of all of these different trailheads. Um, so we ended up, it was a um, survey that took place at the trailhead. So basically volunteers, park staff, and Luskin Center staff um, were out at, stationed at different trailheads, um, passing out surveys um, to, and then also doing a visitor count just to count how many people were coming by um, on, I believe it was two, was it two weekends and four days? It's been, we did it in 2018, so it's been two years now. Um, I think it but, was two weekend days and two week day days and it was two shifts on each of those the morning days. and then the afternoon yeah so and we did it across oh my goodness how many trailheads did we have was it like 40 46, something i think yeah so so we had and there was roughly two to four uh volunteers at a given trailhead so we're talking like hundreds of volunteers over multiple days passing out all these surveys and so um the the survey was largely based on the 2002 survey to like update the information, but with some additional information. Um, and I, so, yeah, we passed out this survey um, and it asked them mostly about kind of what they, how often they came to the recreation area, what trailheads they used, um, what amenities they were using, what amenities they wanted that weren't there um, or that needed to be improved. Um, and then obviously um, demographic information and some travel information as well for, for how far they came from. Um, I don't know if I'm yeah. <laughs> missing any major points of, of our The other big process. section was questions about what activities they were engaging in, like how they were using 
the trails basically like were they there to hike were they there to bike um dog walk their dog you know did they come with friends did they come with family did they come in a group did they come alone how did they get there things like that it was i think there was like 50 questions it was it was like a long survey and it was a hard copy and yet we still got over 4,300 people to fill it out, which is like, was a huge accomplishment. I think in 2002, the sample size was around 900, 920 or something like that. Um, yeah, so it was a huge increase in like, just the amount of data we were able to collect. Um, so beyond like the act, so beyond kind of like those uh, categories of questions, um, Mainly throughout the report, we used these the sociodemographic variables to kind of strat stratify a lot of the um, results to the questions. Um, and those were mainly, you know, and, and I'll also say that everything was completely voluntary. So um, there were slightly different sample sizes for, for different questions because, you know, maybe more people were inclined to fill out their race or ethnicity, but not their age or the other way around or not report their income, but report their education level. So, um, but overall, like, <clears throat> I would say most people filled out their surveys pretty completely, which was like really cool. So a lot of the questions were specifically things that the National Park Service needs to know for their own internal planning of allocating resources um, across the different trailheads, whether it's like in maintenance, in installing new amenities, um, in like what have you. So it was like, there was kind of a set amount of questions that Kira said was from the 2002 survey. Um, and then we added a couple more and then we added some socio-demographic um, questions. So, the structure of the report really is like we have it organized by the category. So like activities, like what do people do in the park? Like amenities, what do they want? What like what's in good shape? What needs improvement? Um, like travel and accessibility. And then we stratify those questions by like race, ethnicity, income level, um, education level, age, and in some cases geography. So. Um, like what county they came from, what zip code, um, things like that. So that was kind of how that I would say that that's kind of like the metric we used um, of like the sociodemographic information. Um, is like, yeah, so we have this massive report that went to the National Park Service that kind of detailed everything. And then we produced the briefing paper, which I think is the one you all looked at um, to kind of hone in a little more on what the Luskin Center was interested in terms of like the impacts of our findings for equity. Um, so yes, there is the very long report and then there's the one that is a little more focused on, on what Britta mentioned about kind of stratifying out these um, findings to see what it can tell us about, you know, are the Santa Monica Mountains accessible? Um, what more um, could be changed? Um, and, you know, who's able to access um, the recreation area? So what were your main findings in takeaways about equity. I could take a stab at it first, um, just because I was recently going through all of this earlier today, so it's fresh in my mind. Um, so in terms of visitor demographics, like who we surveyed, um, and again, I think that the sample size was like 4,360 or something like that. Um, 
it was still so it was a similar finding from the 2002 survey which was that the majority of visitors were still predominantly white higher income high highly educated so i think you can look up the exact statistic but i'm pretty sure it's, it was like over 85 percent of people surveyed had a college degree um most of them didn't have children um and a lot of them had been there before um so they were like a repeat visitor to um one of the trailheads um and also i think around 85 percent of the people were there to hike which is like I'd say the main activity of most of the trailheads, though there are some that are specifically for like mountain biking or rock climbing and stuff like that. Um, so while that was like still the, I guess, most most frequent type of person surveyed, um, we did see a like very large increase in, in diversity, um, especially in terms of race ethnicity from the 2002 to the 2018 survey. Um, so in, in 2018, uh, in, in 2002, only 12% of those surveyed were Hispanic or Latino. Um, in 2018, I think it was close to 21 or 22%. So it essentially almost doubled. Um, and, um, but again, like the main takeaway is that compared to the demographics of the city of LA or the county of LA, um, it's still not there still isn't parity. Um, so like Los Angeles is, is like, I think we cited this in the report um, based on American community survey data, 52% white, 49% Hispanic Latino. Um, and in our, in the 2018 survey, we saw like users, uh, users of that 4,300 sample size were 63% white and 21% Hispanic Latino. So you can still see that um, the people using the Santa Monica Mountain trailheads, um, it doesn't, it still doesn't quite match what the actual demographics of LA County are or what Ventura County are. Um, so there's still, you know, there's still that gap in, um, you know, the people who actually live nearby, like using that resource. And um, there's a lot of reasons, I think, why that happens. Um, I mean, one main one that, that we found is like, just in terms of access to the trailheads, um, overwhelmingly people came by car um, or automobile. There, there really aren't that many trailheads that are accessible by public transportation. So if you're someone who relies on public transportation to get around or your bike or, you know, a combination of alternative modes of transportation, it's really hard to get to the trailheads. And there's only um, like a handful of trailheads you could actually access from the bus. Um, that's a huge, that's a huge kind of barrier for a lot of people. And um you know, when the majority of people have to drive to get to get to a trailhead, which maybe in LA it's a little more normalized because it's a very car centric and like car centrically planned city. Um, but, you know, people who live further and further and further away from the trailheads um, have to, you know, they they have to spend like an extra hour round trip getting there and back. Um, and if you, we did this whole like economic valuation in this report where we calculated based on 
uh, uh, respondents' home zip code and the trailhead they visited, um, how many miles they had to drive, how many minutes it, on average it would take, and then what kind of the average cost of that would be if you combine the, the price of fuel, um, the price of parking, or the price of camping, or whatever it is. Um, people who live really close to the trailheads tend to be higher income, um, you know, predominantly white, very highly educated because it's like they live in the, you know, Hollywood Hills or like Agora Hills or Thousand Oaks. Um, and those communities are, I think, less less diverse in terms of race or ethnicity than um, further away from the trailheads. Like when you get when you get down into like South, Southeast L.A., um, or one of our one of our takeaway main takeaways was like um, transportation is a huge barrier. Like people who live furthest away um, obviously have to spend more time, more money um, to get to the trailhead. And when you stratify like those, um, when you stratify like those zip codes and see how long it takes, so like the further away, like those are also the zip codes that are lower income, um, you know, majority people of color, um, maybe a disadvantaged community status. Um, so you can really see where like those inequities are like falling into line across multiple dimensions. Um, but there's still like obviously that critical lack of like access by public transportation or even just alternative modes of transportation. Um, so, you know, one of our recommendations is like consider, NPS should consider, you know, options or transportation links to serve visitors who can't drive to the parks. Um, you know, more work still needs to be done to increase like lower income and visitors of color um, getting to the park and using the park um, to make sure that the SS, the SMMNRA like serves all residents in the region. Um, and then in terms of um, some of the activities or amenities, um, you know, one of our recommendations was like, future trailhead and park improvements should really consider the diverse use patterns and desires of all types of visitors. And this kind of gets at like something we found in analyzing a lot of our survey results by trailhead. Um, like each trailhead is really unique and is used differently. People go there for different reasons. Um, and so that needs to be taken into consideration when you're thinking about how do you if you're the National Park Service, for example, like how do you, um, where do you want to allocate resources? What needs to be done where? How do people use this specific area? Um, and some ways you can do that is like including inclusive park signage. So obviously in more languages than just English. Um, if I remember correctly, one of, one of our results was that respondents spoke over 22 unique languages. So like if the question was like, what language do you speak at home? Like 22 different languages. It's not just English. Um, so more inclusive park signage, uh, different amenities for different trailheads. Um, a huge result that came out of it was that people want better Wi-Fi connectivity or cell phone service. And the reasons for that in itself were, were different for different groups of people. Um, 
you know, like I think, I think that more women or women identifying folks in the survey um, said that they wanted that Wi-Fi connectivity or cell phone service because of like safety reasons. Um, and that was a little different than like maybe what some of the men reported wanting it for. Um, and then of course, like new types of programming uh, that can address like the varied needs and desires of different types of visitors. Um, so those are like some of our like main findings. I think so. Thank you. That really gave us uh, an overview of the project and it's more in depth than, uh, than I thought. So we just have one more question for you guys. And we just want to know which project in relation to park equity and cultural competency had the greatest effect on you personally. Um, I could speak briefly about another project we did that um, I think was pretty valuable for me. Um, we don't actually have a report out on it yet, um, but I was finishing it up just as I left uh, the Luskin Center. Um, so we were actually looking at a, we were doing an inventory statewide of all of the park access uh, like programs that are in place um, in the state. Um, and so that really ranged from state level programs or like even some national um, like National Park Service programs um, on down to like city level or county level programs. Um, and so in doing that, we interviewed a lot of different people in the park access space um, to kind of ask about what programs were already in place, what was kind of working, where the gaps were. Um, and I think that was really big for me to, to kind of talk to people that were on the ground building a lot of these parks and planning them and pointing out where a lot of the gaps currently were. Um, and that, that was uh, the project where we talked to people and kind of developed this more comprehensive idea of park access, you know, made me realize that it's, while physical access is so important, and we definitely saw that in the Santa Monica Mountains example, um, there are these other potential access barriers in place that aren't just physical um, as well that need to be considered. And so that's kind of where we came up with realizing the importance of of the physical access, the um, programming in a park, the staff in a park, um, and, and also just kind of the long-term you know, funding and, and being able to support a park long-term. Um, and I think it was really great to hear stories, especially from a lot of the community organizations that focus on a very particular community and building parks there and to kind of hear about the relationships that they built with community members and um, how the, the kind of process of creating the park and then and not really leaving the community. They're there long term and they're kind of seeing how the park is growing and changing as the community grows and changes um, and kind of activates those spaces and and finding the things that worked well and the things that didn't and then changing it for the next time. Um, and to so I thought so there's there's so much work happening on the ground that I think is is incredible. And uh, do you have anything you want to add, Britta, on a different project or some of the same project? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so um... So this report we've mainly talked about from the National Park Service. For me, that was kind of my first, um, one of my first like real forays into kind of like the topics of park equity. Um, and some of those like broader themes that come out about barriers to park access or, or green space. Currently I'm working on a project Kira's familiar with because she started it and then I kind of took it over um, after she started her PhD program. Um, it's about building capacity in um, these kind of smaller cities or less resource or less staff cities in LA County um, to be able to successfully ap apply for and win 
these public public funds for park development, um, open space, green space, green infrastructure, etc. Um, and I've you know it's just kind of gotten off the ground. Um, it's not even fully really kicked off yet, but I think that that has uh, had like a, the MPS report kind of had a, a like first impact in like sparking my interest in some of these issues and then this current project is really kind of like continue continuing that interest for me um but also just really bringing to the forefront um all these different facets of what goes into you know getting a park in a community um and I would echo Kira in that some of it can can be kind of discouraging because you hear like just how hard, how many barriers, how many hoops you have to jump through um, in order to get something like this done. Um, and it's it's just I feel like this work is so important. Um, you know what I do at the Luskin Center. We're not we're not like that community organization that is like on the ground talking to folks, canvassing people who live in the neighborhood, you know, trying to get them to come to a meeting, like asking them what they want to see. Like, we're not doing that hard work that those organizations are doing. We're kind of like that zoomed out picture of like, what about these processes are working well? What about these processes are failing? Like what, what, um, what needs to be done to kind of change this ecosystem so that, you know, um, we can get parks developed in these communities, you know, like we can build capacity in smaller cities, connect them with resources, connect them with other organizations, connect them with um, like park development, ad like advocates, what have you, um, to get those projects materialized. Um, so I feel like I just, I'm learning a lot um, and yeah, I think that this this work is like really important and it's hard. Thank you both for joining us for our park interview. You just have some really good insight and topics to discuss. I mean, I could go into your project all night, but <laughs> it's only a short podcast. But uh, thank you again. Yeah, that was great chatting. Thank you both for reaching out. Thank you all for listening today as we discuss park equity and cultural competency. Kira moser Daskalakis is a researcher and associate project manager, and Britta McGomber is a community engagement coordinator and staff researcher for the UCLA Luskin Center for Innovation. The Summer Research Survey for the Santa Monica Mountains National Recreation Area in Los Angeles, California, titled Understanding the Needs of the First Park Users, can be found at innovation.luskin.ucla.edu. Thanks, everybody. Please stay safe out there. Thank you for listening to SubGW, George Washington University Sustainable Urban Planning Graduate Student Run Podcast. Catch us next time to hear more about what's up with urban planning.